Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. This week, we have a special guest with us to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians. We're going to pick up where we left off last Sunday, uh, starting in verse 11, reading through verse 22. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now, in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man, in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we come together this morning and we thank you that there is an empty tomb in the Middle East and there is an occupied throne in heaven. And because of that, we gather, we sing, we pray, we make our requests known, and we position ourselves under the full weight of the authority of your word, and we ask that we would hear from you. So Father, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, what we are not make us, for Christ's sake, amen. Well, on April 7th, uh, 1933, just two months after Adolf Hitler rose to power, uh, the Nazi party enacted what was known as the Law for the Restoration of the Professional Civil Service, otherwise known as the Aryan Paragraph. Uh, The series of laws would prevent any non-Aryan person to be removed or barred from any government position, including the state German church. This was just the first step in Hitler's attempt to build not only Germany in his own image, but the church as well. In fact, a document drafted by one of Hitler's closest SS soldiers gives us a vision of what the Nazi party had in mind for the German churches. Here are just three uh, pictures that the document lays out for the church in Germany. Number one, the national church demands immediate cessation of the publishing and dissemination of the Bible in Germany. The National Church, this is number two, 
declares that to it, and therefore to the German nation, it has been decided that the Führer's Mein Kampf is the greatest of all documents. It not only contains the greatest, but it embodies the purest and truest ethics for the present and the future life of our nation. Number three, on the day of its foundation, the Christian cross must be removed from all churches, cathedrals, and chapels, and it must be superseded by the only unconquerable symbol, the swastika. While this is an extreme example, it's not the only one. History is replete with men and nations who have attempted to build the church in their own image. Sometimes it's a little bit more subtler than an entire party of a country coming in and trying to conquer the church. Sometimes it looks like one man behind a pulpit with a platform trying to create the church in his own image. Sometimes it comes in the form of groups of people within the church wanting the church to be shaped by its own preferences and by its own opinions. But here's a trustworthy, unchanging truth. Jesus is building his church. Jesus Christ is building his church. In Matthew 16, uh, verse, uh, verse 18, Peter, after making the confession of who Jesus is, Jesus looks at the apostle and says, on this rock, I will build my church. In other words, on the truth of your confession of who the, who the Son of Man is, who I am, on the truth of who I am, I will build my church. So it is a known fact uh, that Jesus Christ himself is building his church, and only Jesus can build his church in the way that he wants to build his church. Only Jesus can build the church in his own image. Only one man, and that is the God-man, Christ Jesus, can build his church. No other man can build the church. And so that's, that's what I want to submit to you this morning. That is the point of this message as we look at verses 11 through 22 in our passage this morning, is that Jesus is building his church. And we find three ways that Jesus is going to build his church and that he continues to build his church. And the first way that we find it is Jesus is building his church by reconciling us to one another. Look at verses 11, 15 as we begin our exposition this morning. Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. So Paul begins this section of his letter by addressing the Gentiles. He says, therefore, remember, you Gentiles in the flesh. Um, and all throughout Scripture, um, there are only two types of people. Uh, scripture only makes two distinctions. Uh, no matter what your ethnicity is, no matter what your social status is, no matter what your economic status is, no matter who you are in Scripture, you're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. Those were the only two distinctions that the Old and New Testament gives us. Um, obviously, that does not mean that if you were a Samaritan or if you were an Assyrian or if you were uh, any other from any, or an Egyptian, it didn't discount or minimize your ethnicity. It just meant that God had made two distinct groups. And, and essentially, it was God's people and then not my people. 
Right there, and it didn't matter uh, what you were. It didn't matter if you were an Egyptian. It didn't matter if you were a light skin or a dark skin. It didn't matter if you were a Hebrew or a non-Hebrew. It was either Jew or Gentile. And so for us, that's a little foreign today uh, to understand uh, just the, the, the kind of hostility and the divide that was between Jew and Gentile. And so Paul begins in verse 11 and verses 12 by addressing the Gentiles. He's addressing uh, those specifically who were not part of the covenant community of Israel, who did not have the sign of circumcision. He addresses them and he says, and that's why he says uh, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. He addresses them and what he is calling the Gentile believers in the church to remember is their state prior to knowing Christ, prior to being in the body of Christ. And he, he expounds further on their state. What, 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 was, what was their state before Christ? Well, he says, remember that at one time you were separated from Christ. And he goes further and he says, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers uh, to the covenant. And furthermore, Paul says, remember, on top of that, you had no hope and you were without God in the world. Paul is simply calling the Gentile believers in the church. In other words, uh, remember your position prior to being in Christ. I mean, I think that's a, uh, always a helpful uh, reminder for, uh, for all of us, really. Remember where you were before you were in Christ. He says, he begins in verse 11, therefore. Well, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, if you remember in chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, Paul says it is, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. There is nothing more humbling, and there is nothing that can disarm boastfulness in each and every single one of us than remembering that prior to Christ, we were separated, alienated, strangers with no hope and without God. To be separated from Christ is to be without God. And so Paul calls to remembrance their position because in order for us to see, in order for the Gentiles, in order for the church of Christ, and it's not just the Gentiles, he's going to get to the Jews here in a minute, uh, but in order for us to see how great our Savior is, sometimes we have to remember how grave our situation was prior. And I talked about last week how uh, Paul in chapter 2, verse 1, he talks about us being dead in our trespasses and sins. And sometimes we lessen the offense of what we were saved from. We minimize the former life when it was the very former life that Christ was moved toward saving, right? I use the illustration of the house that I drive by in Brooklyn all the time that I used to party in. And I, and I tried to emphasize that that was the me that Christ saved. That was the me that Jesus loved. He was moved towards that he redeemed. And if I ever forgot where I was saved from, then the Savior might cease to be amazing to me. If we don't grasp the reality of our sin and the depth of it and the offense that it is to a holy God, we'll never stand amazed at the grace of Jesus. What good is the empty tomb and the occupied throne if we were just simply neutral prior to Christ? If we were okay before Christ? That's not the image that Paul gives us. Paul says, hey, remember Gentiles in the flesh. You were alienated and strangers and separated. Therefore... Remember this, 
Not so we can be down on ourselves, not so uh, we can hang our heads, but so we can lift our heads and look to the throne and say, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene, who saved me and loved me and called me into his family. So Paul says, remember this. It's good for us to remember that God took outsiders and invites outsiders to be a part of his family through the blood of Jesus. And that's what it's through, verse 13. But now, Paul says, in Christ Jesus, if you notice, if this is sounding familiar to you, it's because it should. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 10, and Paul's formula was, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, in which you, in which you once walked, following the prince of the power of the air. And then he says in verse 4, we had that turning point, that big heroic moment of God, but now, because of the, the richness of mercy and grace in Jesus, you have been saved. And he uses a similar formula here. And we look in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The Jew and Gentile debate was such a hot topic in the early church. We don't fully understand the gravity of the divide uh, that was in that culture because we don't live in that culture. Uh, but it was such a hot topic that um, one of the first Christian conferences to ever exist uh, was ha- centered around the debate whether Gentiles needed to subscribe to the whole law of Moses and circumcision in order to be saved. If you remember in Acts 15, uh, the leaders of the church, Paul, Silas, Barnabas, uh, the apostle John and James, they all gather together and they have this big conference to decide uh, whether or not Gentiles needed to not only accept Christ and put their faith in Christ, but put their faith in the entire law of Moses. And thankfully, uh, the Spirit of God led them to conclude that no, Gentiles uh, do not need to receive the law of Moses because they've already received the sufficient sacrifice of Christ. And that's why in verse 13, Paul says, you've been brought near not by your works and righteousness and not by the, uh, the law, not by memorizing all of the Old Testament and not by anything that you've done, but solely through the blood of Jesus. And so this was such a big deal. And if you notice here, how did, how did Jesus... Uh, so there's this gap, there's this big divide between Jew and Gentile that needed to be bridged in order that they might be reconciled to one another. Right? Uh, Paul says in verse 15, or in verse 14 rather, for he himself, regarding Jesus, he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And how did he do this? How did Jesus' death restore and reconcile the irreconcilable, the unrestorable relationship between Jew and Gentile? Well, our answer is in verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. In other words, Jesus' death, Jesus' substitutionary atonement, his uh, sacrifice on the cross, not only saved us, not only changed us, not only made a way for salvation to be possible, but it actually made a way for us to get along. It actually made a way for us uh, to be uh, reconciled. Again, this is Jew and Gentile. 
This is those who have the law and those who don't have the law. This is the insiders and the outsiders, God actually making one new man. Uh, Paul says that uh, in place of the two, the death of Jesus made one, right? God took the only real division and bridged the gap through the cross, and then that created a real unity, right? So if you think about it, God himself created the division of Jew and Gentile when he called Abraham to be a nation separate from all the rest of the nations that through his covenant promises. This was a divine division. This was a divine separation here that occurred in the ancient world. And part of God's plan was taking that separation and actually reconciling that separation so that he might in his death and in his resurrection create one new man. There's only two. Paul says there's two. There's Jew and Gentile. He might create one new man. So if Jesus broke down the dividing wall in hostility of the only two distinctions that really mattered, Jew and Gentile, that means every other division that we set up as the body of Christ is a false man-made division that has a direct assault on the work of Christ. Right? So, so when, we, when we create, and, and it's happened in history, I mean, when we create these false, shallow uh, distinctions that divide us as the body of Christ, we look at the broken body of Christ, the work of Christ, and we violate the holy work done on the cross to reconcile both Jew and Gentile. So when we make divisions such as black and white, it's a violation of the work of Christ on the cross. When we make distinctions between Republican and Democrat, when we build churches on middle class versus lower class, or American versus foreign, or how about North and South? When I first moved to the South, I, 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 it took me a while to shed off the name of Yankee. It, I mean, it took me a really long time. The amount of sweet tea I had to consume in order to get rid of that name. How about Calvinists and Arminian, our the, a little theological quarrels that we have with one another in the church? Or liberal or conservative Maybe the theological quarrels don't matter, but the political ones do. It is, it is heartbreaking that in the church today, the things that divide us are shallow, man-made, and ultimately of no concern of Jesus. Right? We have baby boomer versus millennial. I mean, UVA versus Virginia Tech. I mean, the list could go on about the divide, about the walls that we keep building as the church. And yet Paul says, hey, uh, Gentile, Jew, that massive divide, because it wasn't just the, by the way, it wasn't just the Jews that had a distinction between non-Jews. It was non-Jews who also had their own distinctions. In fact, Romans uh, and Greeks, they had their own terms for people who were not Romans and Greeks. It was called uh, barbarians. So if you weren't a Roman or if you weren't a Greek, uh, you were a barbarian. You were uneducated. You were lowly in society. And then again, the, the, the Jews also, if, if you can sense the condescension here in verse 11, when Paul says, uh, remember that you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Right? There's this tone of arrogance and Jesus through his death actually reconciles and puts us all on the same playing field. And it says it doesn't matter which background you came from because the division that was made early on has been bridged through the death of Jesus. 
2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 17 puts it this way. Paul says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. So it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter where you were from. It didn't matter what sin you came out of. Right? Because, again, like we mentioned last week, we were all in the same house of darkness. It doesn't matter which room you were in performing the works of darkness. You were in the same house. You were just as, you were just in, as in need of a Savior as the one who came from a different background than you, who came from a different ethnicity as you, who comes from a different political view as you, whatever it might be. Right? We're all in need of the same Savior. So Paul says that we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if, any was in, in, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So your fundamental identity right now is not your economical position. It's not your ethnicity. It's not who your grandparents were. It's not who your grandparents' grandparents were. It's not your last name. It it, it is not uh, what you do uh, for a living. Your fundamental identity right now in Christ is in Christ. So when we regard one another according to external factors, uh, according to uh, any other any other status other than being in Christ, brother, sister in Christ, child of God, we are tr- what we're trying to do is we're trying to build up walls. We're trying to just build back up the walls of hostility that Jesus, through his broken body, broke down. So an application point here is that unity is vital in the body. And it's not something that we create. Here's, a, here's something that we miss sometimes. We, we think we have to create unity in the body of Christ. We don't have to create it. It's already been made by peace himself. Right? Paul says that in uh, verse 14, he himself is our peace. And by his death, by abolishing the law of the commandments, by abolishing the things, the external factors, the uh, temple rituals, uh, all of the cleansing rituals that made the Jews distinct from Gentiles, he's abolished all of that, he's gotten rid of all of that, and at the center of their peace is a person. We're called to maintain, not create. We're called to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, chapter 4, verse 2. In Ephesians. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite pastors and theologians um, that are a part of the great cloud of witnesses, he was so eager to maintain the unity of his own denomination at the time. He wrote to the denominational leader when they were going in theological decline. Uh, Spurgeon did everything he could not to pull out of his denomination until he finally couldn't. But when he wrote to the president of the denomination, he said, and I quote, Luther was very wrong to nail up his theses on the church door. He should have seen the Pope and prayed with him. That is quoted by one of the most championed Baptists in all of history. So eager was Spurgeon to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So eager was the child of God wanting the family of God to stay together 
Jesus' final prayer on earth for his people is that they would be one. And the more dividing walls we put up, we violate that reconciling work. Our peace, friends, with one another is not based on secondary preferences, but on the second person of the Trinity. It's per- and, and don't mishear me. It's perfectly okay to have preferences, right? It's, it's, it's okay to have differences. I have my own theological distinctives. I have my own regional preferences on where I want to be and where I want to serve. Uh, I, I, there are certain people that I just get along with more than others, but the, fa- the truth is, is that my peace has nothing to do with if you're like me or not. It has everything to do with are you in Jesus? And if you're in Jesus, then we have more in common, we have more peace, and we have more fellowship than the person um, that is not in Christ who might be more like me. The more I grow in my discipleship with Jesus, the less I want everyone in the body to think like me. The, look, the less I want everybody to look like me. Praise God, not everybody looks like me. Right? The less dividing lines that I want, the more I grow and the more that we grow, we should want the church to look like all tribes and nations. We should want the church to look and sound very different and a little bit uncomfortable for us sometimes, right? If you're not gathering with the body and you're not uncomfortable, then we should probably stop and think about our spiritual uh, health here because if, if everybody is thinking and looking exactly the same, that's not the body of Christ. That's uniformity. That's not unity. That is uniformity according to your own ideology and your own thinking and your own image. And that is not the church of Jesus because the church of Jesus looks like all tribes, nations, and tongues and different perspectives coming together centered and rooted on one person, Jesus. Do you know why American Christianity is not working? Because American Christianity doesn't exist. It's not real. It never did. And so sometimes we as the church, I talk to people who are a part of the church and everybody's just panicking and freaking out because American Christianity is looking a little bit different or things are starting to look a little different. Things are starting to not be in our favor. And it's like, that's just been Christianity. When we try to construct a church that looks like us, that church is bound to die. And praise God that a church that looks like somebody else other than Christ is going to close their doors. The less churches we have made in the man in man's image, the better off the world is going to be, and the more the gospel is going to be proclaimed. Can I just say, if you're looking for a church body that looks like you, thinks like you, and always makes you feel comfortable maybe you should just join the country club in Halifax. Join a country club. Uh, join something that's rooted in your hobbies or thinking. Go on Facebook. Right? E- echo chambers surround Facebook. A church, by its definition, according to our text, is a, ch- is a creation of the Son of God made up of redeemed sinners, both Jew and Gentile, both rich and poor, both male and female, both old and young. If you look again in verse 14, or 15, rather, Paul writes, by abolishing the law of commandments, that he might create. Who's he? 
The Son, Jesus is he, the one who actually died, the one who in his flesh and by his blood brought us all near to one another and to God. He's the one that is creating the church. He's the one that's building the church. And he's creating one new man in place of the two. Galatians 3.23, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And again in Galatians 6.15, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Individuals who are new creation, part of a new creation, part of a new society. These next three sermons are going to be called New Society because we're going to be looking at what that new society looks like. And that new society looks primarily like Jesus, the one who created it. So the first way that Jesus is building his church is he's reconciling us to one another in himself. He's creating a people that look different but ultimately look like Jesus. And the second way that Jesus is building his church is by reconciling us to God. He's reconciling us to one another, and he's reconciling us both to God. If you look in verse 16, Paul finishes his sentence, and he says, and, so he, he begins the letter by speaking to Gentiles, specifically. Remember who you were prior to Jesus. And now he addresses both Jew and Gentile. So as if the Jews in the congregations and the churches that this letter would have been circulating around, as if they were standing in the sanctuary a little proud or a little haughty or be like, yeah, you remember where you came from, right? Paul says, hey, look, verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God. In other words, Paul says, it wasn't just the the Gentile that needed reconciliation to God. It was those in the community of Israel that also needed reconciliation to God. Both groups, both Jew and Gentile, are reconciled to God. If we finish our uh, verse 16 here, uh, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So apparently then, just because you were born in the religious community of Israel didn't automatically make you a child of God. It is, uh, it is so prevalent in many churches and in many, in many individuals that I talk to um, that they just assumed they've always been Christians. I grew up in church. My, grand, my grandfather was the pastor of this church. Uh, my, my mom served in the children's ministry her whole life. I go to church on Easter, on Christmas, or whatever. And, and, and what they, what, they have this notion that because they were born into some Christian family or some Christian nation, that that just makes them Christian. It just makes them automatically child of God. And remember, in chapter 1, Paul makes the distinction between the child of God and the child of wrath. And you're either one of those. And just because you're a child of so-and-so does not make you a child of God automatically. And just in case you, you want proof for this from Scripture, Paul writes in Romans 9, verses uh, 6 through 7, he writes, For not all who are descended from Israel belongs to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And again, Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 10, What then? Are, are we Jews any better off? 
Are we those born in Christian homes better off? Are we who have never broken the law, who have never gotten into any trouble, who've never drank too much, smoked too much? Are we any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So what what does that mean? That means all of us need reconciliation to God. All of us need reconciliation to God. No matter if you grew up in the church and in a Christian home or you grew up in reckless living as an outsider of Christ, both the self-righteous and the unrighteous need Christ's righteousness. We all need the righteousness of Jesus. And so the work of Jesus on the cross not only reconciles us to one another so that we might have fellowship and he builds a new community, but it reconciles us to a holy God in whom we had nothing in common with. And not only, and this reconciliation, by the way, um, if you notice here in verse 16, Paul says it killed the hostility. As I was studying this, I was thinking, well, what hostility is Paul referring to? Is he referring to the hostility that he mentioned earlier uh, between Jew and Gentile when he talked about the dividing wall? Or is he talking about hostility uh, between us and God? Well, I think it's both. But as Paul's moving into the reconciliation of God, I think he's trying to reemphasize the fact that there was hostility between you and God before Christ. There's no neutrality. It's always hostility outside of Jesus because self-righteousness and unrighteousness are both an attack and assault on the law of God and on his holy character. And, and, And so... Paul says that in the death of Jesus, the one who was killed was killing hostility as he was being hung on the cross. He was putting to death the hostility that we all walked in towards one another and towards God. It's a vertical hostility and a horizontal hostility, but Paul primarily, I believe, in this, in this section has a divine hostility. And look, it is a beautiful thing that we've been reconciled to God. Because we can't just stop there, and Paul doesn't stop there. It's not as though we have a, uh, just a cordial relationship between God. It's not that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God and appeased God's irritation at us, um, or, or that you know, he needed to appease the Father because of something. No, it's not that we're just okay with God now. It's actually we have access to God. We have access to him, not just as God the judge, but God the Father. Because if you look in verse 7, after Jesus kills the hostility, he says, and he came and preached peace to you who were both far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in the spirit to the Father. So so Jesus' death kills the hostility and doesn't just produce this cordial, okay uh, relationship. Like sometimes uh, when, when we've forgiven somebody who's wronged us or, 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 when, or when we know somebody who we don't really quite get along, like, yeah, we, can, like, we can stand to be in the same room as them because you know, the air's kind of been cleared after a while. That's not the kind of relationship Paul's talking about. This reconciliation brings you from enemy of God to child of God. It's not that you just only become a friend of God, but you become part of his family. Imagine if somebody assaulted your family and then after they assaulted your family, you brought them in as family. 
Uh, it reminds me of, some of you might be familiar with the story of uh, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot and the five missionaries that went in, uh, uh, into, um, I, I, the name is escaping me of the tribe uh, that they were trying to reach the gospel with right now. But um, if you're familiar with the story, you know that Jim Elliot and the five missionaries, they were all slain on the beach as they were trying to share the gospel with this tribe. Well, we all, we're all familiar with that, but sometimes we're not so familiar with the fact that two years later, uh, the wives and the children of the missionaries went into the same tribe, to the same uh, area, shared the gospel, they accepted faith, and one of the children whose dad was slain by one of the tribesmen became a child to the tribesman who slain the dad. If that, if that makes sense, that was a little uh, all over the place in my mind. Uh, in, other words, in other words, this child moved into the tribe, and, and because... Th- the, the leader of the tribe it put his faith in the blood of Jesus. And in the name of Jesus, that child treated that man like he was his father. It wasn't that they just forgave, he forgave uh, the tribesmen for killing his dad. It's that he actually moved into a father-son relationship with the one who actually assaulted his family member and took away a dad. That's what Jesus' death does for us. It doesn't just move us in from enemy to uh, being cordial, but we have access to the father through Jesus, and we have total access. That means any place, any time, any prayer, any request, any concern, any question can be brought to the throne room without reserve or hesitation, and God is not annoyed with any of it. It's, I mean, it's, it's just, imagine, let me paint a picture here for you a second. When we have access to the Father, what Paul is saying is that what um, Isaiah envisioned in Isaiah chapter 6, that great throne room, the one who sat on the throne, the one whose robe fills the temple, the one whose voice shakes the foundation of the earth, the one whom the seraphim are flying around, covering their eyes, covering their feet, and yelling, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. That's the one we have access to as a father. That is who an intimate relationship has been produced by the Son of God to bring us in closer and closer and closer. God is not tolerating you, friends. God has invited you into his, as a child. I mean, if I could impress on the hearts in every single one of you and in myself daily, every single day, is God is a father to me. God is a father to me. He's a good father. He's not annoyed with me. He's not bothered by me. He's not disappointed in me. He, he's satisfied. He's completely satisfied. And so because I'm in the Son and because you're in the Son, he looks at us in the same words that he looked at and told Jesus when he rose from his baptism and said, uh, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That is directly applied to you and me. All of us who are in Jesus, we have the divine uh, favor of God the Father. We spend so much time uh, as, the, as the body of Christ wandering around trying to figure out if God loves us or accepts us or is happy with us. Uh, and, and therefore, and then that, that creates a little bit more tension between the body of Christ. Can I just say to you, God the Father was intentional of making you a son and daughter. He was intentional. How do I know that? Because in chapter 1, Paul says that he adopted you. Look, you can have a kid on an accident, right? Like biologically, you can have an accidental child. But you can't adopt somebody by accident. 
You can't accidentally bring somebody into your family through adoption, right? You look at their background. You look at where they're from. You look at their past. You look at their records. And you say, that's the one that I want. And that is what God the Father did to you. He looked at every single one of your names. He looked at every single one of your past and said, yeah, you did this. You were hanging out here. You were right. But I want you. I I want you as a son and a daughter. And that is what the reconciling work of Jesus on the cross produces. It doesn't just produce a right standing before God, but it produces relationship with God as, father, as a father. And we have total access to him. Imagine if you had total access to your favorite uh, celebrity. Um, very, very little impressive on the scale to God, right? Like my favorite celebrity is nowhere near to the throne room in Isaiah 6. And, you know. um, but imagine if you had total access to the Queen of England or the President or somebody in the high official. This is, Paul is saying you both. It's not just the elites have access to God the Father, right? Uh, it's not just because I stand up here uh, with the Bible open doesn't mean God listens to me more than he listens to you. In fact, I'm pretty sure God stopped listening to this sermon 30 minutes ago. (laughs) Paul says in verse 17, or 18 rather, for through him, we both, doesn't matter, it matters little if you're an elder, if you're a deacon, if you're a small group leader, if you memorized all the New Testament, if you haven't, if you come on Tuesday nights, through my study with the Psalms, which is really incredible. Uh, but it, it does not matter who you are in the body. We both, it doesn't matter where you come from, we both in Jesus have access to the Father. So that's the second way that Jesus is building his church. The third way the final way that Jesus is building his church is Jesus is building his church on the unshakable, rock-solid foundation of the word of God. Jesus is building his church on the word of God. Look at verses 19 through 22. Paul writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. I love what Paul does here because he basically says, uh, your nationality is kingdom. You're, you're a citizen of the kingdom. And he also says, your family members are not by blood, but through the shed blood. He says, your family. Your family. And he says, this family is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What does Paul mean? Is Paul saying that we need modern-day apostles and prophets in the church in order for a church to function? No. If you remember in Acts chapter 2, the description of the early church is that they were uh, devoted to the teaching of the apostles and prophets. What, What Paul is saying here is that the church is built on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Every single word. It's built on the foundation of the word of God through the spirit of God, verses 21 through 22, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place uh, by God. 
So as we're built on the Word of God, growth and holiness come from what God has said. Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. And I'll end with this. If you notice in verse 22, Paul writes, in him you are also being built together. In other words, the church is still under construction. He doesn't say the church has been built or finished. He says being built, active. It's not finished, and it will not be finished until Christ returns and gathers his elect to himself. Not until every name that is written in the Lamb's book of life, Revelation 21, 27, will the church be fully built. That means there's room for you. That means there's room for you. And if you want to know how to be a part of the family of God, here's how it is. It's not by having your name on the roll. It's by, in faith, repenting of your sin and putting your faith in this truth. For our sake, he made him to be sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. To become part of the family of God doesn't mean you work your way up the ladder. It just means you embrace the righteousness of Jesus applied to you through faith. That's a verse you could live your whole life on. This is not a message of get your act together before you come into the fold. It's a message that says you don't have your act together, you never will have your act together, but that there is someone who does have it all together who took your sin upon you, upon him. And through simple faith in Jesus, you can be made whole and right and included in the family of God, the living God, the church of the living God. Let's pray. Father, we love to address you as Father. We love to come into the throne room. And we love to come to you as your children, as your family, and bring our needs before you. Lord, we are a needy people. We are a sinful people. We are a stumbling people and a forgetful people. So, we just come to you asking for, for nourishment, for forgiveness, for strength. We spend a lot of time building up the blocks of the wall that you broke down. Lord, forgive us. May we begin in our families, in our churches, and in our communities to live out the reconciling work of Jesus. May people see that we are family. And may, we, they may people see that you are our Father. And may that truth drive so deeply into our hearts that, that we would share that with others and that we would grow and live in that. Lord, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at fccsobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.